tonight we're moving ahead in thinking through the Apostles' Creed, which we just recited together a moment ago, ancient Christian creed confessing the gospel and theological truth basic to the Christian faith, dating back to the second century, the early second century, generation immediately following the apostles, summarizing what they wrote in the New Testament. It's a creed, I'll remind you, that is, a, that is confessed by Christians weekly all over the world and as well as down through the centuries since the days immediately after the apostles. So it's, it's a, we're certainly joining with a great cloud of witnesses when we confess that together. We're still in the longest section of the creed, still focusing on what we confess and believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. The first section was just two, two lines. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And then we move. It's a Trinitarian formula. Later in the creed, we'll say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But we're in that longest middle section on the Son. And it focuses mainly on what we confess and believe about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And tonight, we're coming to perhaps, I don't say perhaps, yeah, probably, the most neglected and most misunderstood line of the creed. Um, I'm talking about this confession about Christ. He descended to the dead. You may, have, you may have grown up in a tradition that said, if you confess the Apostles' Creed, that may have confessed it this way, he descended to hell. So it's, uh, yeah, we, two weeks ago it was, we talked about his miraculous birth and conception by the Holy Spirit. And last week it was his suffering, crucifixion, and burial, and tonight... He descended to the dead. So for the, go to the next two weeks on his resurrection and then his ascension. So essentially, our focus tonight is, has to do with these questions. Where was Jesus between 3 p.m. on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday? Where was Jesus? Um, where was Jesus on Saturday, in other words? And likewise, what was he doing? Where was he? What was he doing? Does the Bible say anything about that? Is it even important? I said it's perhaps the most uh, neglected and, and misunderstood for a couple of reasons. One, um, without question, it's, the most, it's one of the most unfamiliar doctrines to us. We, don't, we talk a lot about the cross. We talk a lot about the resurrection. But when's the, the last time you heard a sermon ever on this particular point? Where was Jesus on Saturday? Right? We have Good Friday. We have Easter Sunday. What about Holy Saturday? We don't, we don't ever talk about that. Um, and like I just mentioned, some of the traditional um, translations of the creed, when we say he descended into hell, to our modern ears, that communicates fiery torment. And so some, some evangelical Christians are like, I don't even want to confess that. Some prominent evangelicals say, I don't even want to confess that if that's what it means. I don't think it does what it means. Uh, so, originally, uh, there was two, two equally ancient ways of, of, of saying this. He, he descended ad inferna, which it means to hell, um, which in the original did not mean fiery torment. It just meant what it's synonymous way of saying, saying it. He descended ad inferos. He descended to the dead. It meant the same thing. The 
Hell was the place of the dead. It doesn't necessarily mean a fiery torment. It didn't mean that until really in Roman Catholicism about the time of the Reformation. And so um, I personally can confess he descended to hell with a clear conscience because I know that originally it didn't mean what our modern ears hear it to mean. But I think to say he descended to the dead communicates better. So that's what we confess. He descended to the dead or the dead ones. But what does that even mean? And where do we even find that in the Bible? And what, what practical benefit, even if I do find in the Bible, what practical benefit do we find in this doctrine in, in, in life? That's what I want us to think about for a few minutes tonight. So we're going to look at several, or think uh, over the course of this time, think about several different passages of Scripture. Um, but just to, to begin with one to get our minds thinking in this direction, take your Bible and find Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And when you find that chapter, don't you hate it when you find too big of a chunk to turn back? I was trying to find Matthew. I found Zechariah. I just grabbed way too many pages. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. When you find that, I'm going to begin reading with a passage beginning in verse 38. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 38. I'm going to read through verse 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and with this generation and condemn it, for they, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Father, um, this and every other scripture we're going to consult tonight is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And this is a, a doctrine that is found in its pages. It is an important, it is a beautiful doctrine. It is one that is sorely misunderstood and Perhaps there's many of us here tonight who've never even thought about it once until this very night. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see this truth and ears to hear and hearts to embrace um, this truth that we see and wills to obey whatever it calls us to do. Holy Spirit, would you superintend our time together tonight? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see in that text we just read, what caused the early church to even begin thinking about where was Jesus on Saturday? I mean, it wasn't just a curiosity to them. It wasn't just like they were sitting around bored and were just thinking of things. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Or can God create a stone so heavy he himself cannot pick it up? It wasn't questions like that. It was, it, it, it was they were reflecting on things that Jesus and the apostles said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does that mean? What are we to do with that? What is the heart of the earth? What's he doing there? We just confessed that he was buried. 
in the Apostles' Creed. So we must, when I say he's buried, that's where they put his body in a tomb. So when we say he descended to the dead, we're talking about somewhere his human soul must have gone. His body went into a tomb. Where did his soul go? Upon death, prior to his resurrection, where? What? I think to begin to get our head around this doctrine, we're going to need to get a little Old Testament background, and as well as some of the background that, that uh, how thought developed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so it'll set the stage for the New Testament when we finally get to it. Um, I don't, if you're taking notes tonight, I don't have any neat and tidy points tonight. Uh, it's not three points in a poem tonight. Um, we're just going to think, think through what we find in the Bible to see if we can get a, a, a good idea about what happened with Jesus between the cross and the resurrection. Where did he go? What did he do? And then at the end, I just want to make one practical application of this doctrine to, um, to, to real life that we shouldn't discount, shouldn't ignore. Um, it's a very comforting doctrine, actually, this uh, idea that he descended to the dead. And I will say at the outset, I've been helped in my understanding of this doctrine uh, very much by my friend Matt Emerson. I'm, I'm going to plug his book right here. Uh, this book right here, it's called, the, it's called the, He Descended to the Dead, An Evangelical Theology, Theology of Holy Saturday. He is the dean of the School of Theology at Oklahoma Baptist University. It's, uh, I commend it to you. It will stretch you in some ways, but it's well worth you working your way through it. A good bit of what I'm going to say tonight, he helped me see. All right, let's get into the Bible. Um, I think I, think, uh, I want to start with an idea that will hopefully serve us well in thinking through this doctrine, and it's the idea of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. We believe that Scripture is God's revelation of Himself and of His will to us. From beginning to end, His truth is revealed in Scripture. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, Peter said. All of Scripture is inspired by God. There is not any part of Scripture that is more inspired than any other. From Genesis to Revelation and everything in between is the Word of God equally and fully. It is truth without mixture of error, so says our Baptist faith and message. So where am I going with this? Believing what I just said that it's all inspired of God and it's all just as inspired as every other passage, believing that does not require you believing that everything is equally revealed in every part of Scripture. The idea of progressive revelation affirms that, that God was all along revealing truth, but He revealed it progressively. He added more and more to it as time went along. So, uh, we have lots of examples of that. Certain, certainly, the triune nature of God is an example of that. I mean, surely we see the triune nature of God more clearly now that Jesus Christ has come than we saw it in the Old Testament, even though there are hints of it in the Old Testament. Surely we, we, uh, we see God's plan of salvation unfolding that way. We have a, an early promise of of, of salvation in Genesis 3.15, but it's not what Jeremiah 31 says in much more greater uh, detail. 
And, and, and we have a promise in Genesis 3.15, but we have a whole series of covenants throughout the Bible that add upon one another that paint a big, full picture of salvation that explodes when Christ comes. In the same way, a lot of doctrines come into clearer focus as time and as Scripture unfolds and rolls along. One doctrine that is particularly relevant um, to, to the line of... Uh, the creed is this confessing our, uh, the, our belief in Jesus' descent is how Scripture progressively reveals what happens to us when we die. What do, you know, that'll help us understand Jesus' descent if we understand what does Scripture say happens to us when we die. And, it, and we get a progressively clearer answer to that from Old Testament to New. Uh, so even early in the Old Testament, there was a conception of going somewhere when we die. That, that was found early in the Bible. Um, think, for example, about how, how it is worded in Genesis 25 at the death of Abraham. Abraham, the, the, the guy that, I mean, Genesis 1 to 11 is moving at light speed, and then Genesis 12 hits, and it's slow all the way to Genesis 50 because of Abraham. Important guy. And he dies, and in Genesis 25, here's what it says. These are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. That's what it says. And he was gathered to his people. And that last phrase, and gathered to his people, that last phrase is distinct from his. It's not a different way of saying he was buried, because it's in the next, it's in the next verse that they said, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. So Abraham dying and being gathered to his people, or gathered to his fathers, literally, is distinct from them burying his body. So there's a sense that even in Genesis, when, when Abraham died and his body was buried in a cave, in some sense he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his fathers who had gone before him. But it's not fleshed out yet what exactly that looks like. In a similar way, remember uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and they had a son together, and that son died. And in 2 Samuel 12, when that child was sick and was dying and had died, this is what, Sam, this is what David says, or what we read in 2 Samuel 12, verses 22 and 23. David says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. He didn't just say, I'm going to die too one day. He says, I'm going to go to him. Okay? So he's somewhere, and when I die, I'm going to go there too. There's that idea. He's going to be reunited with his son in some way. In the same way in the Old Testament, there was already a belief that not only did we go somewhere when we die, but one day there's going to be a great general resurrection in the end. This is what we read in Daniel 12. And some would be raised to reward and some would be raised to judgment. This is Daniel 12, 1 and 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, 
some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there was already in the Old Testament an idea that both the righteous and the wicked go somewhere when they die. And it's, as Matt put it in his book, when they are in the, that place, wherever that is, the righteous and the wicked, respectively, are experiencing a foretaste of their eternal fate, whether punishment or reward. That much is revealed in the Old Testament. Um, you have different words thrown. Sheol, you hear of Sheol in the Old Testament. Sheol was just the general place where the dead went. And it was sort of beginning to be understood as sort of this place where both the righteous and the wicked go, but they're not in exactly the same place. They're in this place where dead people go, but they're sort of separated between righteous and wicked. That's already in the Old Testament. Malachi comes to an end, and you have a 400-year period of silence from God. Nothing is revealed. There's a 400-year gap between Malachi and Matthew. God is silent, but that doesn't mean people quit thinking, <laughs> right? So they, the, during that 400-year period, people are still reflecting on what, what the Bible has already told us. And, uh, and, 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 and they, they were coming to get a clearer picture of what God had already said in the Old Testament, the fact that the, the, the righteous did go to one place, the, the wicked did go to another place. They're both in Sheol, but it's almost like they're in different compartments. That's, that's the idea that they're developing in that one compartment's for the righteous, one compartment's for the wicked. And, and a greater variety, during, it's during that time period between the Old Testament and the New that they started giving different names to these places. And you see these names pop up in the New Testament. Okay? So, so just a few examples of that. The place where the righteous went, the righteous compartment, is sometimes referred to going to Abraham's side or paradise. That's the name they gave to where the righteous go, the, the, the part of Sheol where the righteous go, paradise, or going to Abraham's side. They, they, they are experiencing, experiencing a foretaste of their reward, but they are awaiting the fullness of it to come. On the other hand, the wicked, when they die, they go to, and it was named different things. The abyss is one. The abyss, or a weird word, Tartarus. Or, and that, that was, the abyss is predominantly a place where God consigned the fallen angels or the demons, but it's a place where the wicked go to. But also Gehenna. Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, Gehenna is the place where it's associated with the fiery torment. Uh, it's a foretaste of their punishment that will come in final form when God's unfolding plan is complete. These ideas were coming about during that time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were gaining steam in that time, and it is precisely the language and the conception of things that we find when we come to the New Testament. This is the world that the New Testament happened in. Right? And it provides a little context then when we, when we see different things in the New Testament. For example, Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, one thief doesn't believe, the other thief does believe, and he tells the believing thief, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
It's I'm, where the righteous go when they die. And that's a point we're going to come back to in a minute, but it's right there. He, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Or 2 Corinthians 12, 3. Paul said he had what may have been a, a, a vision in which he was caught up into paradise where the righteous people go. Paradise continues to be the name of when you get to the eternal state and then the reward is finally full and all, everything has come to pass. That place is still called paradise in the book of Revelation. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. On the other hand, in the New Testament, the abyss, like I said, the abyss is described as a place primarily where fallen angels and demons were assigned. So, for example, in Luke chapter 8, in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus cast out uh, demons out of a man, and what do the demons say to Jesus? They say in verse 31, they beg Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. That's Luke 8, 31. So he cast them where? Into a herd of pigs who committed suicide. <laughs> Several times in Revelation, the abyss is mentioned, often translated the bottomless pit, where demons are consigned in the judgment of God. But in Romans 10, 7, for example, it's a place where more than just demons go, where the unrighteous go. And to confirm this, a parallel, parallel name for that is Gehenna. Gehenna in the New Testament. And notice how in, in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says Gehenna is a place where both demons go and unrighteous people go. He said in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, that is Gehenna, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. It is a place of, of torment, foretasted now, but will come in final form when Christ returns. But like I said, these, these two places are pictured as being in the same general place, but two different compartments, two different compartments for lack of a better term, two different areas of this same place. And um, they're two different compartments, one overarching place of the dead, which explains why you have passages like, take your Bible and turn to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16, and this story of the rich man and Lazarus. And when you find Luke chapter 16, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So there's that place, paradise. This. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, that's another place of general place of the dead, being in torment, so he's in the, the, the other place. <laughs> He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called, called out, 
Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The idea of Gehenna. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between, uh, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may, be, may cross from there to us. So two compartments, you cannot go from one to the other. And then, and he said, then I beg you, Father, Sent to send to my send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, Him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay. Notice how very clearly in that passage. The rich man and Lazarus died, and they both went to two different places. Lazarus went to this place, often referred to in verse 22, as Abraham's side, synonymous with paradise. The rich man was called, went to a place called Hades, uh, which, which in this sense, is, in this particular passage, is, is, is more synonymous with the abyss or Gehenna. He notes that the torment he's in, and I'm in anguish in this flame. Here's the important point, though, for our discussion at this point. It's not just that there are two different places, but to, to understand Jesus' descent to the dead, there is communication between the two places. You see that? I mean, they're talking. And he's talking to Abraham, and Abraham's talking back. There's communication. Their places are fixed. They cannot cross one from the other, but there is communication. You'll see the significance of that in just a minute when we think about Jesus' descent to the dead. And on that note, Scripture, as we've already hinted at, is clear that as Jesus yielded up his spirit on the cross, his body was placed in a tomb, but his soul went to the place of the righteous dead. Hence, he told the man on the cross, like we said, today you'll be with me in paradise, the place of the righteous dead. Where else do we see that, though? Is that the only place we see Jesus or anyone else talking about Jesus going to this place? Peter affirms it in Acts chapter 2. At the, on the day of Pentecost, when he stands and he preaches on the day of Pentecost, he preaches mainly a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But he, in the process of that sermon in Acts 2, he quotes from Psalm chapter 16 about Jesus, that his soul was not abandoned to Hades. He did not, did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He, Jesus was not left in the place of the dead, but he went there, but he rose from the dead. That's, that's Acts chapter 2. Paul affirms it in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 9, basically saying that Jesus' descent to that place was part of his victory, was part of his victory along with his resurrection and ascension. I can't stress that enough. Jesus himself affirms that more than once. We already saw it in Matthew 12, 40 in the passage that we began with. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But also noteworthy is what Jesus says about himself in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the, the living one. I died 
and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys. That is Jesus affirming that when he went to the place of the dead, he was going there from a position already of victory, right? Which his resurrection confirmed. When he rose, when he rose from the place of the dead, he had with him the keys of death and Hades. So we've seen that, that Jesus went, Jesus went uh, in his human spirit to the place of the righteous dead while his body was placed in a tomb, and that as he went to the place of the dead, he was going from a position of victory already won by his substitutionary death on a cross. Which brings us to one more thing. What exactly did he do there? Okay, we've established that he went just like we all go. He went. What did he do? For that, we can take our cue from one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. So flip over. I'm, I, I told you we'd look at a lot, but flip over to 1 Peter 3. And look at with me at verses 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, and I'm going to interpret that as in which time, in which time he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I'll go ahead and take that to be the abyss where Satan, where demons, fallen angels, as well as the unrighteous are kept bound in the abyss. All right, hold on to that. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Just one chapter over in chapter 4, verse 6, in, a, in a, another hard-to-understand verse, but he does mention in chapter 4, verse 6, that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Not as a second chance of salvation, but as a victory proclamation. Now, stay there. Remember what we said earlier from Luke chapter 16, the story of rich man and Lazarus. That the important point there was communication could happen between the two places. They're talking to each other. And that from the earliest Christian tradition and the teaching of the apostles themselves, that is what happened when Jesus went to the place of the dead. He communicated. <laughs> he went to them, to them and both. He went to the place of the righteous, and he proclaimed both to the righteous and to the unrighteous. He proclaimed to the righteous that their experience, they were, they've been experiencing a foretaste of their eternal state. And their, their experience is now going to increase a bit because now they are not waiting on the Messiah, but now you're going to be dwelling with the risen Christ. Right? Better for you. But he goes to, goes to uh, the wicked, and, and in his descent, he looks to the other side and proclaims to the wicked his victory over them, rendering all the more certain their unchangeable and eternal torment waiting on them. Bottom line is this. Jesus won the victory on the cross. It is finished. Right? His victory tour came in three stages. His victory tour 
came first in his descent when he proclaimed victory to the dead. His victory tour second lap was in his resurrection when he proclaimed his victory to the world. His victory lap number three came in his ascension when he proclaimed his victory to the hosts of heaven. And Paul would say to the Philippians, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are so many applications that we could make here. I just want to make one. In fact, I'm going to let my friend make it because he says it so much better than me. And it has to do with the greatest fear in life for most people, and that is of dying. Most people, a lot of people go throughout the world not even thinking about dying, but when they do think about dying, it kind of it's kind of scary. So here's what here's what Matt said. I'm just going to read. I'm going to read. And it's, I'm going to read you for a minute. So just hang with me. He says the most important practical application of the descent, at least in my opinion, is that it means that Christ experienced death in the same way we do, and defeated it. His human body went to the grave and his human soul went to the place of the righteous dead. This is not a natural state for humanity. Death is an effect of the fall and Jesus became fully human to the point that he experienced the fullness of death. He did not die one moment on the cross and rise the next moment but remained dead for three days. This is a great comfort to those who are facing death or those who have lost loved ones and those two categories encompass everyone on the planet. When we or those we love face death, we can find assurance in the fact that Christ, too, has experienced death in all its fallen fullness. He really, truly died. His soul was separated from his body for three days. This is just as we will remain dead and just as our souls will remain separated from our bodies until Christ returns. Our Savior has gone before us. Just as the Ark of the Covenant went before the people of Israel through the wilderness for three days to find a place for them to rest, so Christ has gone before us through the wilderness of Hades to prepare a place for us to rest in Him. But He has not only experienced the fullness of human death, He has also defeated it. Death does not have the last word. Those of us who trust Christ do not have to hope do not have hope only because Christ experienced it as we do, but because in experiencing it as the God-man, he defeated it. And one day he will expel it fully and finally from his presence and from our experience. We do not remain dead just as Christ did not remain dead because Christ has defeated death in his death, descent, and resurrection. Because Christ rose we long for the day when we will rise with him and dwell bodily with him forever on the new heavens and new earth. This should bring believers comfort here on earth as they experience evil, suffering, oppression, and all other effects of sin. Christ's descent answers the problem of evil because in it and in his, and his death and resurrection, he has defeated the principalities and powers. The descent then ought to be a great comfort to those facing death, whether their own or a loved one's. It is part of the reason we grieve, but not as those without hope. 
When we cite Paul's statement in funeral context, it is usually to point to the resurrection, and that is right and good, and the ultimate grounds for such hopeful grieving. But in the meantime, while we think of our own departed dead, while we walk in their graveyards and look at their ashes and remember their lives, while we ponder our own deaths, and while we consider how long it is, O Lord, until the second coming, we do so with hope. We hope because Christ also remained buried in the grave, buried with us and for us. We hope because we have a high priest who has experienced death as we all will if the Lord tarries. We hope because we have an advocate who has experienced the pain of death and yet has done so victoriously, rising from it and drawing us with him on the last day. We therefore dig our graves, facing toward the east, knowing that as our bodies de decompose, our souls remain with Christ, awaiting the day when he with loud trumpets returns and reunites our bodies and souls so that we can live with him forever by the power of his spirit to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this truth. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you that as we lay, as we lay ourselves dying, and we wonder what that place is going to be like when we breathe our last, we don't have a thing to fear. You've already gone. Lord Jesus, when you said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that's where you meant. Help us to remember um, not just your suffering on the cross and not just your resurrected glory on Sunday, but your still silent body in a grave on Saturday with a victory going on in the place of the dead. Comfort us with these truths, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.